This person died in 2016 at age 53. Towns Van Zandt. <laughs> not Towns Van Zandt. His death was described as, quote, unexplained, but not suspicious. Uh, yeah. Let's see, Carrot Top's alive, right? Um... <laughs> he won a Grammy in 1988. Uh, Kenny G. I forgot how good you are at trivia. Not Kenny G. He grew increasingly uncomfortable with the superficiality and relentless promotion of his 1980s-style pop stardom. He turned away from video clips and live shows. Rick Astley. No? <laughs> uh, God, this is hard. In Britain, he was showered with awards. And in 2004, Britain's Radio Academy said he had been the most played performer on British radio from 1984 to 2004. What? These are, why, how is this easy? In 1998, he came out as gay. I mean... Elton John's alive. British. Gay. He was a handsome, smiling teen pop idol, making light-hearted singles like Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go with Wham! And arriving as Oh, a my God. George Michael, really? <laughs> Today, wow. Today's dead celebrity is George Michael. Welcome to Famous and Great. I'm Michael Osborne. My name is Amit Kapoor. And on this show, we go through a series of categories about multiple aspects of a famous person's life. We want to figure out the things in life that we would actually desire and ultimately answer a big question. Would I want that life? Today, George Michael died 2016, age 53. Category one, first line of the obituary. George Michael, the creamy-voiced English songwriter who sold tens of millions of albums as a member of the duo Wham! and on his own, was found dead on Sunday at his home in Goring in Oxfordshire, England. Amit, what do you think of that obituary? I mean, we have to talk about creamy. I know. I don't like it. I don't like it either. Are they trying to do a sexual innuendo? Sure that feels that way. In the obituary? I don't care for this obituary on a lot of fronts. I mean, what I, don't you like about it other than this word in question? Okay, they sold tens of millions of albums. That's not a number that has meaning to me. He was a best-selling pop artist, right? Platinum, I'm sure. Yeah, but the word pop is not in here. And I think it really needs to be. I think that referencing both Wham and his solo is appropriate. And this is a clue that I only know because since you and I started this show, I've started paying attention to obituaries. When you hear the words, was found dead, that's usually because it's suspicious circumstances. And not to skip ahead too much, George Michael, as best we know, died of natural causes. 
the words was found dead are usually a suicide or an overdose. Was that known at the time of the obituary? I don't think so, which is okay. why that's in there, which is, I think, why that couches the whole first line thing. Yes. You only say so much when somebody's died under premature and perhaps suspicious circumstances. I don't love it either because, as you said, it didn't mention pop. It used creamy for some reason, but it, it seemed to purposely dodge the idea that he was a sex symbol and yeah. that his sexuality was a very huge part of his life and his public life. Right, and I think, I don't know, when, it, when all you say is the guy sold tens of millions of records, like that's kind of all you're saying is he sold records. Not that he like deserved to sell the records or he was this celebrated international superstar. It, exactly, it doesn't point to any quality other than financial success. I don't think it gives him credit as the megastar that he was. There's like five names to represent that level of stardom at the period of time that George Michael was peaking. But I I mean, I think this is a grander question is, do you remove it from the context? So the fact that you don't know the cause of death, does that change the way that you should remember the person? I don't know. I think it's a good question. What is hard about that question is, are you saying something about how they should or should not be remembered based on the nature of their death? I think I want the first line of the obituary to tell me how I should feel about their life, not how I should feel about their death. Does well that make put, sense? Very well put. And so on this score, he had a creamy voice, I guess, and he sold tens of millions of records. And he was with Wham! and then he was solo. That's all I learned. I don't know. I started at a low score. I talked myself to a slightly higher score. I think I give this a three. I think it's, meh, three or four. You I were might thinking that up. low before. Yeah, I'm going to bump it up to a four because I do think it's actually comprehensive. Yeah, I'm not going to be that harsh on it. I'm going to go a five. I don't think it was too much of an insult, but I think it really undersold his stardom. Like sensational or some other kind of synonym of the word sensational? Yeah, you wanted one of those. Exactly. I mean, it, you know, because there is a like stratospheric success and peak for him, even if it's not sustained. Yeah. Okay. You're going five, I'm going four? Yep. Okay. Category two, five things I love about you. Here, Amit and I work together to come up with a list of five reasons we want to be talking about this person and why we are impressed with their life's work. I got one I'm kind of excited about here. Okay. I wrote fulfilled childhood dream of starting a band with a friend. Ooh. I feel like it's somewhere like late grade school middle school, you might go to a friend and say, we should start a band. Yes. And George Michael started Wham! with his friend from grade school. Like, they made good on that dream. I love that. That is an excellent one. Thank you. I thought you might like that one. Yeah, that really is wonderful. Because I'm thinking, like, the kids are in the upstairs or in the basement or whatever, playing around with the band, and mom comes down and brings some tea yeah, and it's like, oh, you boys are going to be rock stars one day. And then yeah. she goes back upstairs and it's like, oh, they're never going to be rock stars. Yeah. Did you do this when you were a kid? Definitely. I think we were going to be rappers more likely than a band. Sure. I could say that. Why? No, I just, I, I know how much you love rap and hip hop. Oh, it wasn't a skin tone? No, God. No, Indians don't. Why did you have to make it a I, I did again. Indians don't excel at rap. Actually, no, we do. We're a hip hop centered Diaspora. <laughs> uh, okay, I didn't mean to. I always make it racial. No, no, that's good. That's good. I need to squirm. Yeah, it's sort of my role to remind you. Yeah. Anything you do say, wince, or look at could possibly offend me. Yeah, sure. I want you on the edge <laughs> of your seat at all time. All right. So that's my number one. 
Uh, I think that's a fantastic one. Thank you. What did you have for number two? This is something that I didn't learn until I did the research, but I won't say he invented, but he was integral in starting the phenomenon known as carpool karaoke. You know, James Corden, the late night show. So the very first one was not on a show. It was part of Comic Relief, and it was James Corden with George Michael in 2011. Call me good. Uh Uh-huh. Call me bad. Call me anything you want to, baby. George, and I know. Uh Uh-huh. That's you say. Come on. That is wonderful. Do you have a favorite carpool karaoke video that you've seen? The Paul McCartney one was fantastic. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Oh, really good. Oh, I'm all over that. I love when Paul McCartney shows up. I saw one with Michelle Obama that was pretty great. Yeah, I think that's like one of the most shared ones. Yeah. All right. Can I take number three? Yeah, go number three. I wrote down positivity, glam, and showmanship. I'm lumping all of these together. Let me start with this moment. I don't care for George Michael's music for a number of reasons. Some I'm aware of, some I'm not. I'm really worried about my unconscious bias when it comes to George Michael. Sure. I grew up in a environment where gay men were readily ridiculed. And in preparing for this episode, I've been really looking at how much of that unconscious bias I'm bringing to the table here, right? So positivity, glam, and showmanship. His music is very upbeat, it's very happy, and there is a sort of, like, attitude around what he cranks out, even if I don't care for it. I want to I unpack this a little bit. So you're saying that you don't like the music because it's poppy and perhaps you have an unconscious bias from the environment you grew up in. Not just poppy, annoying to me. Annoying and potential unconscious bias. You're right. However, you, you respect it, the positivity and the glam, So much so that it wants to be one of the five things that you love about George Michael. Yeah, because I think that I want to try and take the position that this is not for me, but that his music and his art and his persona are worth admiring, even if I'm not the market for it. I think you said it very well, that it is not for you. I still don't understand why it was not for you, but what you're saying is that you can admire the creation without liking it. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. That's good. That's self-aware from you. I didn't get that at first when you first started talking, but I see it. I get your point now, and I like it. I'll own my own shit here, because I don't want to blame culture for any kind of residual prejudice I have. I don't remember having a conscious thought at age 12, 13, 14, or 15, is he a closeted homosexual? That wasn't something that I really thought about, but I don't know how else to talk about this. The salient point, I think, is that what you say is built in your perhaps unconscious bias is the fact that for you to be a superstar, closeted or not, rising at that time, it is going to color a lot of your life and your perception. Are you talking about me or George Michael? George Michael. It could be a hard fucking time to be gay. To be gay, period. That's all we're saying. Yes. However, I would like to make this point. I firmly disagree with you in the quality of the music. You love his music. I don't know if I would say love. You said firmly disagree. Yeah, because you said like hate. I mean, if it's freedom or like wake me up before you go, go. Wow. Not all of it, but a few of them. I love that you can feel this way about his music and also be a big fan of hip-hop. Like, was that at the same time? Were you flipping back and forth between NWA and George Michael in, you know, 1989? Yes. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. (laughs) Okay. Is that your number four? No. Okay, so number four I'm going to take. Okay. And that is The Comebacks. 
So you had the Wham years, which were closely followed by the solo career of Faith. Yeah, went right into it. Then he disappeared from the public eye slightly, didn't release any major hits, and then 1996, Jesus to a Child. Yeah. Massive hit. Again, goes slightly out of sight for a little bit and comes back in 2004 with Patience and he's playing like Wembley Stadium again. Hmm. I'm happy to sign off on that number four. There is a bifurcation that happens, I think, though, where his stardom crosses into America, and it's all part of one straight upward line for both the UK and for the US through faith and through the 90s years. But I think that he plummets in the US, or maybe not plummets, but certainly tapers off in a way where he his ascendancy keeps rising in the UK. Yeah. I, I think I think you are right about there. that. So I'm saying that I guess purely from the perspective that I saw living in America those entire decades was a kind of down and up and down and up pattern. Yeah, but I'm not even. But it's like down and then way up. Yeah. Okay, so are we at number five? Four was the comeback, so we're at five. All right. I got one. I put these two together. Are you aware of the song "Outside" and the video that surrounded the song "Outside"? I'm very aware of the song. I'm aware of the time it came out. The video, no. Okay. So this was in 1998 after George Michael had gotten arrested for a lewd act in a public bathroom at Roy Rogers Park in L.A. On April 7th, 1998, at approximately 1648 hours, Beverly Hills police officers arrested the singer known as George Michaels. Mr. Michaels was arrested for a violation of 647A of the Penal Code, engaging in a lewd act. I've heard different accounts of what exactly happened, but it was like a police sting. Yeah, um, it was an entrapment. Yeah, totally, right? This whole thing pisses me off. Like, who are the cops who are, like, trying to, like, bust gay men in, in a public bathroom? The whole 1991. Just go back 1998. to... 98 is when he was busted. Yeah. Still not that hard to believe. It's still not that hard to believe, but it's sort of infuriating. And it clearly, like, they're excited to bust a celebrity. Yeah, it is extremely infuriating. He writes this song outside and has a music video that parodies the whole thing, where there's a man in a bathroom and he turns around and, like, the urinals spin around and turn into, like, mirrors and there's disco balls in the bathroom and he's, like, making fun of the whole thing. Years later, in 2012... He also does a segment on, uh, did you ever watch Extras, the Ricky Gervais thing? I did. I don't remember the George Michael episode. There is a George Michael episode that I came across in the research where Ricky Gervais is doing some sort of community service and George Michael comes out of the bushes and sits on a bench. He's like, yeah, I'm doing community service. He's laughing at these public acts of lewdness. I like that quality. I wouldn't, I want to correct your language. I don't think he's laughing at the public acts of lewdness. He's laughing at the public humiliation and the suffering and the entrapment. And all yes, that. yes, absolutely. So that's um, a good number five. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on. Category three, Malkovich, Malkovich. This category is named after the movie Bing John Malkovich, in which people take a little uh, portal, a tube, it's like a water slide, into John Malkovich's mind, where they wake up and they can see the world through John Malkovich's eyes. Malkovich, Malkovich. Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. The point is to imagine what it might be like to be this person. Ahmet, what's your Malkovich moment for George Michael? So my Malkovich moment that I I most want to be behind the eyes for, he was known for doing these random acts of generosity. Yes. And there was one that he, I was talking to a bartender, she revealed she was in student debt, and so he tips her 
in pounds, but the equivalent of over $6,000. Yeah. I've often like really fantasized about that, about like reasons to be rich. I can't come up with a bunch of them, but the ones I often think about are like, okay, I could fly like business class or first class. Yeah. I could order appetizers more. Sure. And three, I could give. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> order appetizers more? Yeah. You order fewer appetizers because of you're worried about a big bill? Uh-huh. Okay. Just wanted to sit with that for a second. Number okay. three? Variable outlandish tips. Uh, yes, I, I, I have fantasized about this. Too. And I'm suspecting there's a feeling behind it. And maybe it's not even getting the person's reaction. Maybe it's just signing a $10 bill and adding $6,000 to it. Yeah. The feeling you get when you sign that bill. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the feeling of joy when the person receives it. Yeah. The feeling of you doing it. Yeah. That's my Malkovich moment. That's good. Have you ever come close to that? You must have. I probably tipped like 22%, 23%, maybe. What about another was, a, random even... act of kindness? That's a lot. That's really impressive. Thank you. Yeah, I thought I would get a chuckle, yeah, but I didn't. Sorry. Have I ever done a complete and total random act of kindness? Well, or one that actually is financial in order. Like, have you ever dropped a big wad of cash into somebody's lap and they didn't know it? Not gigantic. Yeah, nothing, nothing like a six thousand dollars to like take care. Of. Well, but you didn't have it. I mean, it's all relative to whatever wealth you have. Correct. I mean, I'm fretting about the potato skins. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. I love that appetizers is what you do with excess wealth. That's great. It's one of the three things. Yeah. No. I just said more of them. I allow myself to have them. Yeah. No, I think it's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it's maybe perfect. I'll send one over to another table. I think, <laughs> I think we need to figure out a way to get you a lot of money so all this love can come spilling out. I think I'm supposed to have a lot of money by this point in my life, considering opportunities in education, but... Yeah, well, we're working on that. All right, <laughs> shall I give you my Malkovich moment? Yes. I had a couple. I was very tempted to go with when the movie Seven came out by David Fincher because David Fincher directed Freedom 90, the George Michael music video that had all the supermodels in it. Yes. And I just would have loved to have seen George Michael's reaction. He's like, that's the same guy I worked on and he made this fucking movie? But I'm not going to go with that. Are you aware of the letter that Frank Sinatra wrote in a very public way in 1990 to George Michael? No, but I'm very excited to hear this. Well, he was basically lambasting George Michael for complaining about fame. George Michael had grown very weary of all the scrutiny and the sort of like paparazzi and all of the attention. Basically, the gist of it is you're lucky to have this. People don't have talent the way you do. Enough whining. Get up there and perform. And based on what we know about George Michael's life, I think he was a pretty sensitive guy. To get this from fucking Frank Sinatra, of all people, like, now he's coming after me? Yeah. But I also think it hit a nerve. I think a very central part of George Michael's life is that he struggled to make peace with his fame. I think that this is Frank Sinatra piling on. I wonder if in that moment he realized, I've got to figure out how to make peace with this, or I'm going to be buried. Yeah. And it's also, fuck you, Frank. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Totally fuck you, It's Frank. 1990, and George Michael is not public about his sexuality. So it's like, Frank, you know nothing. For your style of fame, Frank, and your style of public machismo has nothing to do with me pilfering my talents and complaining. I also got to say, maybe this Malkovich moment is really, for me, about Frank Sinatra. Because I want to be in Frank Sinatra's eyes as he's saying, you know what I got to do? I got to write this letter. Yeah. 
What an asshole. Anyway. And that just eras by gone. I mean, I don't think Frank Sinatra could understand. Obviously not. What I really wonder about is, is there self-reflection in there? I mean, here are some. Oh, it's like, do I listen to Frank or do I just say, fuck you, Frank? That's right. That's exactly right. He's such an unlikely spokesperson for this message. I kind of want to know if it got through to George Michael or not. Yeah. Well, that's my Malkovich moment. Okay. Frank Sinatra writes you a letter saying, stop complaining about fame. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Category four, how many marriages, also how many kids, and is there anything public about these relationships? There's a lot of public things about the relationships. I mean, there's not marriages because he didn't live in a time that was acceptable. Part of the deal, yeah. yeah. And there was uh, also no children. No, I mean, which could have been done. Yeah, no, he was, I mean, he was having sex with women in the Wham days. Yeah, but even even from an adoptive perspective. Yeah, so I don't know, we should go through what we do know about his relationships. I mean, we're in a difficult category here, right? Right. Because of who we're dealing with. Yeah. All right. So let me go through this. So he did come out to Andrew Wrigley, his Wham co-partner, when he was 19. And Andrew was apparently totally fine with it, but also said, don't come public with this. So he fell in love in 1991. This is the first, for him, the first like true feeling of love. And Selmo, who ended up dying in 1993 from AIDS-related Brain hemorrhage. A brain hemorrhage, yeah. And they were six months into the relationship when he found out he was HIV positive. And there was a moment there where George Michael thought he might have been HIV positive. Sure. Okay, George was 28 when that relationship began. In 1996, he started dating Kenny Goss. And in 2005, they did almost have a civil union. So not a marriage, but they came close to sort of tying a knot. He's the guy from Dallas? That's correct. They ended up splitting up in 2009, but this is the longest relationship single relationship for George Michael, and he is aged 33 to 46. And then in 2012, George Michael started dating Fadi Fawaz, and that's who found him dead. George Michael started that relationship at age 49. What do you want to say about Well, this? a lot of what I heard is the relationship with Anselmo, the guy that died of AIDS-related causes, right. was his... Love One true life. love that yeah. he never got over. Yes. And that that was... I think subsequent partners knew that, too. 
Yeah, the downward slope of drug abuse and arrests and all started with his death. Yes. So that's, I mean, that's one thing to note, I think, is that the man experienced deep love and deep loss pretty soon after deep love. Kind of back to back, yeah. I mean, that's the, like, it's the question, is it better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all? Where Where do you come down on this? Is it better to have loved and lost or better to have never loved at all? It's it's so hard to, it's such a general statement. I would say better to have loved and lost. It's so much of an ingredient of vitality, of understanding why we're even here. Yeah. But it's, it's also just cruel that if you're experiencing it for the deepest level on the first time and that partner is taken from you after two years, I mean, you got to think what a cruel fucking world. Yeah. I don't know, Ahmed. I don't know how much to make this the sort of central fact of his life. I mean, I think there's two things that are easy to know about George Michael. One is that he was gay and didn't come out until 1998. And two, that he became famous basically as a teenager and rode a rocket ship to stardom throughout the 1980s. And yeah, had some comebacks along the way, but basically kind of peaked, I think, 1990. Those two things his sexual orientation and his experience of fame, they just shape everything. And I feel like there is more to know, but is there? I mean, I read a biography of George Michael and the author seemed to, you know, be really excavating what could be known about this man. And I'm not sure he got anywhere because it it all started for him at such a young, confusing age. I've been wanting to talk about this and this is, I feel like this is important. Are you familiar with the term emerging adulthood? I am not familiar with the exact term. I can take a guess what it means, but go ahead. Well, the way it was explained to me is that it's actually debated, whether it's a a stage of life or not. And it's somewhere in between adolescence and young adulthood or early adulthood, emerging adulthood. And it's worth reading up about. It may be a cultural fabrication, but there is some sort of like brain development pieces that go along with it. If it exists as a stage of life, first of all, it tends to exist in more privileged societies. But- It's like 18 to 25 where you are figuring out a lot of things. You're figuring out your political views. You're figuring out your values. You're figuring out what kind of people you want to hang out. Some of the tribal sorting happens in emerging adulthood. I feel like George Michael's emerging adulthood experience was kind of robbed from him. He chose to become famous and played the game to become really famous, first with Wham, then as a solo artist. And it just set him so far into the stratosphere that there was never any, like, backtracking, never any opportunity for reflection, never any, like— Titrating. Yeah, normal, healthy sorting it out. I kind of feel like George Michael got a little fucked over in that by his own choices, but by his own choices before he understood the choices he was making— yeah, yeah, I mean it's the whole you know child I mean? it's a whole child star theory, but you what you're making the point is that it gets more complicated it with gets the sexuality. More complicated, yeah, with the sexuality in those emerging adulthood years. That's right. Like it can really complicate things. Really complicated to the point where friendships and intimacy and love, you know, it's hard to figure out. And then he does fall in love with somebody, and then six months later, that person gets an HIV diagnosis and then Dies, dies shortly later. thereafter. Yeah. I'm not even a couple years. It's less than that. It's like a year later. You know, everything about this is tragic. Yeah, it is. And I it's, mean, and it's like of, the poster child example of why fame would suck. 
Well, why fame would suck if you are living in a world that doesn't accept you. There's no welcoming world around you for what you are sensing inside and what you're attracted to. There's just a dangerous world. You know, we're at really peak AIDS time. There's this homophobia that you're hearing on stage, yet you are a rising superstar. I think it sucks to be famous at a young age in terms of being able to sort yourself out later. Right. And I think it would really, really suck to be doing that while harboring a secret. A secret driven by a deep instinctual drive that you really don't have any power or control over. Like, you can pray and wish yourself a way to not be gay, and good luck, right? I don't believe that's possible. I don't think there's anybody at all that would agree with that. I think that there's absolutely people out there that believe that you can be Or that you can pray it away or Yeah, fucking A, or that you can enter a sexual re-education camp. I mean, there's absolutely— I guess that does still exist, yes. Fucking A. I wish it didn't. I mean, we're not being honest. There are networks that our guests are dedicated. You're goddamn right, and it may be more mainstream than you realize. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how far we've come on this. My point is that it sucks. Yeah. It's hard. And I think the whole reason for— all of the civil rights work we do, all of the the motions of progress, all of those agendas is exactly for this. To be yourself and feel safe, yeah. feel accepted, and do not feel singled out for any reason. Sure, okay, but that's sort of like, that's what we want out of culture and society. If you are George Michael, and you are gay, and you are riding the rocket ship to stardom throughout the 1980s. I guess what I'm trying to get to is choices given the constraints. If one of the things that we're interested in this show is desirability and what are the choices someone did or did not make, given the context and the environment and the situation in which they're making those, what is to be learned here? Because I'm I'm more I'm certainly more mad at society than I am at George Michael's decisions. But I don't know that that tells me anything about desirability of his life. It tells you about quality of his life. Not about, it's not necessarily about the choices that he made. He's a talented person. Yes, he wanted to be famous. He pursued this career. Did he know how challenging that would be and what that would do to potentially a later life of substance abuse and so forth? No. He was, what, 19 when he started. So, no, it doesn't at all speak to choices. So, what conclusions are you and I to draw about that? Sometimes there's not a conclusion that we can extract and say, okay, this is how I would make a decision or this is how I'd educate my children to make their decisions. Sometimes I think what you can just draw from it is this sucks and this is why we make grander changes as a society. Well, then maybe that is the desirable thing is that I want to be doing that for other people. Yeah, but it doesn't speak to any desirability of George Michael's life. It does not. So, yeah, I mean, maybe that's the the lesson learned could only, maybe it's just intrinsic for the rest of us. Category five? Category five. Net worth. I'll just say 200 million. It's a lot of money. Wham. <laughs> that is a big number. But it makes sense. I'm so good with it. Superstar. I'm so good with it. I mean, he actually was intentionally wanting to compete with Michael Jackson, Madonna, and Prince. But that was his peer set. Oh, absolutely. It is his peer set. And therefore, I am very comfortable with $200 million for George Michael. I have no conclusions to draw from this, other than that's more money than I'm comfortable with. It would allow you to make $6,000 tips? Yes. It's a lot of money. And he was a international megastar. His stature and his success and his ability to churn out hits is incredible. And he was well compensated for it. 
in terms of desirability, way more money than I desire. But I do like the idea of appetizers. Yes. But I, I can just only guess, but I don't think it did much for him. I think he's pretty clear that it didn't do a lot for him. I think he'd be the first to tell you that. All right, category six. Simpsons, Saturday Night Live, or Hall of Fame. This category is a measure of how famous a person is. We include guest appearances on SNL or The Simpsons as well as impersonations. I'll take this first with The Simpsons. There's one random reference to something called Ned's List of Laudable Lefties. The Leftorium had to have been in the Leftorium episode. Ned opens a store that is just goods for left-handed people. Oh, that's hilarious. Laudable lefties. I was thinking of it in a political context. Then, of course, okay, shall we go? That's the only thing I could find. He never uh, He never was, guest voiced? He never guest voiced. I never even saw on SNL that he was ever, either him or Wham, was on, did a musical act. Which really? I, I know. Shocking. I, I could be wrong. I might have missed it. I was shocked as well, and I did not find it. He was parodied. Data Carvey did a pretty funny impersonation. Look at it. Accept it. Look at it, Dennis. Look at my butt. The worst thing you can do is try to ignore it. It's a total circle, don't you see? And then I saw a still image. I couldn't actually find the video for it. Robert Downey Jr. in the short years that Lauren Michaels was away and Robert Downey Jr. was on the cast for one year, he did a George Michael impersonation. Hey, you don't know the skit. I don't know the skit, I'm afraid. I don't feel like we can let the TV thing go without calling out George Michael from Arrested Development. I, I wrote that down yeah. here. <laughs> yeah. Your Uncle Job seems to think that he saw you down at the docks today. Was that you? No, no. Maybe it was the other George Michael, you know, the, the singer-songwriter? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, but it actually, and it plays into the plot line later because George Michael Bluth, yeah. when he later learns about the criminal record of the real George Michael, is when he wants to change his name. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, that's funny. Uh, and then finally, Hall of Fame. George Michael did make it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2019. As he should have. As he should have. Category seven, over under. In this category, we look at the life expectancy for the year they were born to see if they beat the house odds. Ahmed, I am sorry to say, this is our first under. Yeah, he, he was, I was 53 years old. He was born in 1963. Life expectancy for men in the UK was 67.9. For what it's worth, it's 66.6 in the US. For some reason, UK men are living longer. They're born in 1963. Smaller know. soda size. I, I guess so. Anyway, George Michael died at 53, our first under on Famous and Gravy. Sucks. Yeah, I don't, I'm, a, I'm a little silent because I don't know what to... I mean, it's sad. All it points to is just sadness, I think. Yeah, I agree. He did outlive his mother, at least. Yeah, and natural causes. I was definitely wondering if there was more to the story. Fatty liver doesn't speak to good health. Yeah. But, yeah. George Michael's under. Pause on that for a sec. It's time for a word from our sponsor. Hey, folks. Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report. And you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, 
you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. So, Michael, we each do our own set of research as we prepare for these shows. Mm -hmm. I notice you always reference a biography and you have like a paperback biography with you as we come to studio. Yeah. So I am to assume that you're getting these from some online Megamart. Is that correct? No, not at all. The first thing I do when you and I decide on our next dead celebrity is I go and find out, is there a biography on this person? And is that biography available at half price books? There's a store right up the street from me, an actual brick-and-mortar store where I can walk in. And I go there to find out, do they have a biography for our next dead celebrity? But I always wind up picking up more books. I go through the children's section. I'm a sucker for a good page-turner, so I go through the murder mystery section. They also have rare collections. They have signed stuff. I don't know how this sounds to you, but I actually... I love the smell of half-price books. It's got that old book smell. I do. I like that, too. Isn't that a great smell? Yeah. And you know what? Half-price books is currently celebrating 50 years of buying and selling books, movies, and music. There are more than 120 stores, and you can find out more about half-price books at hpb.com. All right. The first of the inner life categories. Man in the mirror. Did he like his reflection in the mirror? I'm going to say no. Yeah, he said. I no. mean, he was he was universally attractive to all sexes and genders, but such an identity struggle of not being able to be who he wanted to be. I don't even know that I have an articulate way to say it, but... Well, he complained answer. about his hair a lot to his friends yeah. and how unruly it was, and he didn't know what to do. Andrew Wrigley also did say that that when he saw the image that George Michael had after Wham, you know, the leather jacket, the sunglasses, the blue jeans. He was like, that's not the George I know. I do think that he was extremely conscious and deliberate about cultivating an image for the moment. That in as much as you and I have talked about how fame selects for certain qualities, George Michael plays to those qualities in the early 80s. He's coming out of a very depressive 1970s era. It's what the audience wants at that moment with Wham! in 82 and then all the way through to Faith in 87. Yeah. But I do not think he liked his reflection all throughout. Yeah, I mean, there's just there's signs of mental health struggle. Yes. Right, with the, the substance abuse. He was even openly, as late as 2010, saying he still goes out like cruising for anonymous sex. Yeah. In the early hours of the 4th of July this year, George Michael's Range Rover crashed into this branch of Snappy Snaps in Hampstead. The police arrived to find the 47-year-old slumped over his steering wheel. Blood tests proved he'd been smoking cannabis. The word wham now marks the car's point of impact. Like, there is a lot of destructive habits happening there, and I don't see how you can look at the mirror and be like, okay, everything's okay. Next category is his outgoing message. You have reached the voicemail box of... The creamy voice? <laughs> I assume he liked it. I think so, too. I feel like if there's anything he likes about himself, it's probably his voice. He is a singer. Yeah. Is this just a, a redundant question when we talk about singers? That's a great question. I mean, like Tom Waits, for example, or Dylan. I think there are singers who like, are going to sing, but it's not the main thing that they're doing with their music. Like They drag themselves to it. 
I don't know. I guess the other side of the coin is there are some people that sing so well because they think they talk so poorly. I don't think that's true here, though. I think he like his speaking voice is just as nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, right. I, I would agree with that. So, yeah, we're, we're thumbs up on outgoing message. All right. Next category, regrets, public or private. I'll start with public. I mentioned earlier, Wham goes to China. I don't think he regretted going to China. He did regret a little bit his attitude going into China. They hired a documentary filmmaker who had done like political work in the past, and they put together this film at the end of Wham's tour in China, and Wham was barely involved because this person was like shooting Chinese people, you know, in everyday life and contrasting it against Wham. So I think don't think he liked how the publicity around it was fashioned. Another regret, his first solo single after Wham was I Want Your Sex, which was kind of misinterpreted. I heard the biographer— Extremely misinterpreted. Extremely misinterpreted. The biography I read likened it to the way Born in the USA was misinterpreted as a patriotic song, yeah. where it's actually like a Vietnam War protest song. I Want Your Sex is about monogamy. Yeah, well, it's not, about— Not promiscuity. Correct. I think it's a regret. It might be a regret. This actually probably should have been in private. I'm yeah, not, well, I, it's got to be just a regret that it was so misconstrued that you had what you thought was probably a great idea for a, a message yeah. in, in a catchy refrain. While it did lead to record sales, probably the publicity helped all of that. The intention was never really talked about. Yeah. Other one I had in the publicly known was 18-year hiatus from touring. He did not tour really from 1990 to 2008. And when he came back to it, he loved it. He was like, I was making a big deal out of it. I wish I'd started, I'd come back because I like being on stage. But he had gone through the loss of his lover. His mother died. He was dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of mental health for many of those years. So I think he actually regretted being away from the stage for the 18 years because that's a pretty long time. Yeah. So that's what I got on the public front. The only private one I have is when he got famous. All the stuff I said earlier about emerging adulthood. I think that if he could go back in time, I think he probably would not have wanted to have become famous as a result of Wham. Yeah, that's kind of what I wrote, yeah. too. It's just that it's living a public life that young in at that time. You've got to wonder, because, I mean, he was suffering crippling depression in, in the late 80s. Yes. Even when he was on these world stages and doing Diet Coke ads and stuff. Like, the, the man writes and talks about crippling depression. Do you think that's part of the reason he was so successful? Like, I mean, I do wonder if maybe we all had an intuition that there was something beneath the surface, there was a deeper pain, you know? I wonder if that's like his superpower in, in the 80s and 90s. Does that make sense? That theory of fame there? Yeah. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a theory of, of artistry in general. Right. Uh, right. That but you think I don't that, know. That there's for... something that you read beneath the art. That's yeah, what I but mean. for pop stars, it's a tougher thing to say. Nowadays, it is. I mean, you look at Taylor Swift, who's a great example. Yeah. Who outwardly is super poppy, but now that we know so much more about the private lives and at least their perspectives on things, we know her to be somebody who struggles a lot. Yeah, well, I do think that the contract with the public has shifted over the last 30 years. Absolutely. There is an injection of humanity into it a little more now. But I just, I wonder if, because the pain is so deep with George Michael, I wonder if that doesn't make the audience want to love him a little bit more and buy just a few more albums. Yeah. It's a, it's a theory. All right, next category, good dreams, bad dreams. How could it not be bad? It, uh, yeah. Okay. I, I would agree. I mean, I think they were, they were probably good for a while, but then the depression starts at a pretty young age. You lose your first true love. 
I mean, you mentioned substance abuse a lot here. It really doesn't get bad for him until the 90s. With Wham, Andrew Wrigley is the one who's party on. Correct, but the 90s is still his 30s. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, he's young. He's young. What I'm saying is he's not uh, some addict alcoholic who, like, at age 15 has his first drink and is off to the races in terms of being self-destructive. It really doesn't get bad until he achieves a level of stardom and wealth and notoriety and all that and has still got this giant void inside. I think the story I'm hearing you say is he's achieved so much financially. He's extraordinarily wealthy. He's known around the world, played concerts in China, has millions of fans, yet somehow still feels like shit. Yes. And that is, I think, where you just turn and just need to feel something else. But it's even begun engaging in relationship, meaningful relationships with men. And then, tragically, his first love dies. So it's not even about that anymore. I don't know. Like, at, at that point, I guess he's just accumulated too much pain. I think that's right. Bad dreams. All right. Second to last category, cocktail, coffee, or cannabis. Which one would we want to partake with our dead celebrity? I want a one-on-one drinking session. I want to talk about all the things that you and I just talked about. You know, just how did you see the ride? Yeah. What advice would you give for somebody else, like, on the frontier of that, knowing everything you know? I guess that can be a coffee conversation, but I think there it needs to be a little... Inhibition loosening. I had the exact same thing, Amit. I was trying to think what drink. I was like, maybe a gin and tonic? It needs to be faster than beer. Like, we need to get to a kind of tipsy spot pretty quick so that I can get to an honest place. Yeah. But for all the reasons you just outlined. I like what you said, Maybe the British made you go gin. Yeah, that's probably it. I think you and I are kind of agreed on, you know, what it all means for him. And I think we recognize a kind of tragic figure here. One thing that's been funny about all this is how many people I talked to in the lead up to this episode who didn't realize he'd even died. For all the attention, for all the wealth, for all the fame, for all the success, I don't want to say forgettable necessarily, but like he's not going to be viewed 10 years from now as a pioneer, even though he was gay before it was quote unquote okay to be gay, even though he wrote some of the most successful songs of all time and was one of the most played British acts on, on BBC Radio. You know, ultimately, like, ugh, what does it all mean? We can go right into the Vanderbeek, if you don't mind. I want to I want to make a comment about what you said. If, okay. You know, he wasn't a pioneer. Maybe he was... I, I'm saying he won't be remembered as a pioneer. He won't be remembered as a pioneer, but perhaps pioneers can't happen without him, right? So right, I'm giving you a picture of a red brick wall. All right. Okay, that red brick wall is the constraints that we as a society with built-in prejudices have against certain people. Okay. Okay, a pioneer may be the one that breaks through the wall, but there's another type of person who could just be one of the first few swings against it to loosen the bricks. Yeah. And maybe that's what his role was. And it's hard, but you don't necessarily have to be the one to break through the walls in order to loosen the cement. Okay, I agree with that. But I don't think history is going to like give him the credit that maybe he deserves. But this is also the point. Like History has no place for this, for the people that are making the early swings at the brick wall. There's no story to tell. There's no remembrance to be had. And your sadness and your pain may just be a pure and total sacrifice 
for the future. All right, so we're going to get to the Vanderbeek right now because that is the perfect segue into the question, Amit, would you want this life? Because the question I have for you about all of that, this is a resounding no for me. I can't come up with a good case for it, but I always ask you to make a good case for it. And let me contextualize that this time and say, if you don't know that you might have made that contribution, if you don't get the sense of peace or resolution, does it influence the Vanderbeek for you? Yeah, it does. It does. But let me let me talk it all through. Okay. So there's a lot to desire, right? If you just freeze frame the public life of the 80s and the sold-out arenas and the Grammys and the Coke commercials and who your contemporaries were, there's a lot to be wanted there. We know how the whole story <laughs> played out. Yeah. There's yeah, also— Let's linger on that. That's, that, you, that. There's a lot to be wanted there because it's fun, because it's validating. Like, what's good about that? Sure, just take fun and validating. Okay. Don't even don't don't dig any deeper. Okay. There's also a case to be made for charity, right? He gave a lot to causes. I love this six thousand dollar tip. That was not the only time that he did that. Like uh, he he had these other random acts of extreme generosity, like playing a concert for the nurses at the place where his mother died. So he sent John Lennon's piano in which he wrote Imagine around the world to sites of various places of human tragedy. So he used money in kind of this Willy Wonka type of charitable way. Well, and it came out, just to pile on to that, it came out after that he did it anonymously, way more than people knew and understood. Yeah, there was one story that he called in to like deal or no deal because one of the contestants on there said that she wanted to have a baby, but she couldn't afford IVF treatment. And he so he called her. into the show and found out who she was and sent her like $15,000. Uh, that, right. That's one of many stories where he did something that, he paid for some like Christmas tree or something in his hometown that nobody knew that he was funding for every Yeah, Christmas. and there was no publicity. These stories all come out later right. and that is honorable as anything but i'm i'm also a no on do i want his life okay okay so the pain is deep the pain is obvious you have a complicated life it leads to death at 53 which was not a suicide but it's clearly a result of a mistreatment and abuse of body yes so to your point like what is it all for you're not going to be remembered for being that first few strikes against the brick wall. I don't think anybody's ever going to give him credit for it. I don't think he's ever going to remember it. I don't know that he was at peace with it or could even make that argument to himself at the deathbed. It's just an act of your pain is a sacrifice for that. And it's a tough question. Do I want that? No, I don't want that. Well, okay, wait a sec. Let me ask, what if you did get to learn that on your deathbed? You know, if a voice descends upon you somewhere and says, you've done more than you realized, and, and I, some anonymous, vague, higher power, am grateful to you for what you've contributed to the stream of life and to the society at large and the world at large. Like, if you get that message, does it change anything if, it, if you only get that one moment with it right before the end? For me, no. For me, it wouldn't. It doesn't. It does not take away decades of pain. Very, very, very few things to me, as I see life. Yeah. Very few things can be worth decades of pain. Nothing to me that I've experienced would be worth that pain. Me neither. But I also wonder if that leaves me as a little bit chicken shit about pursuing a spiritual life. It does. It's, it speaks to both of us being a little chicken shit about it. I mean, everything is the story you tell yourself. 
Yeah. And so maybe some part of him near the end was telling that story to himself. And so maybe he can see that. He was a part of that, and it's a greater good, right? That's the spirituality part of it. Well, yes, but the consciousness of the story, that's the thing I'm curious about, you know? Like, you're right. It is a story we're telling ourselves. Like, his awareness and the grace with whether he lives in proximity to that story or not, that's what I wonder about. It's a heavy one. Well, so we're both now. Yeah, we're both now. It's a lot of pain. It's a lot of sacrifice. I don't think I got the stomach for the pearly gates. Do you? Yeah, I can do it. Okay, so here we are. I'm with St. Peter. I am not George Michael, because that wasn't even my birth name. My birth, Did you remember the birth name? Yeah, I can pronounce it. It's, it's Greek. Greek. It's, it's, it's Yorgi or Yordio something. Yeah, it's very Greek. Yeah. Anyway, so here's the story. I had a dream to create music and be a rock star with my best friend as a teenager. And I did that. We sang feel-good music. We sang the type of music that was played at proms, that was played at weddings. It was festive music. We were bringing the party. My life behind that is extremely difficult and storied. But I still brought the party. And I did that through a musical career that spanned several decades my music changed, but those original songs and the spirit behind the later ones were still bringing the party. I also brought the party to places that no one knew I was bringing the party. I was giving money. I was giving gifts. I was giving performances as pure acts of generosity. Party and generosity let me in. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Famous and Gravy. If you're enjoying our show, please go to Apple Podcasts to rate and review us. It really does help new listeners to find the show. We would love to see you on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is at Famous and Gravy. We've got lots of fun stuff there on our Twitter feed. Also, please sign up for our newsletter on our website, FamousAndGravy.com. Famous and Gravy was created by Amit Kapoor and me, Michael Osborne. This episode was produced by Morgan Honecker. Original theme music by Kevin Strang. And thanks also to our sponsor, Half Price Books. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that fantasy points has to offer. That's fantasypoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. Fantasypoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 